Welcome to episode six of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I am a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I am broadcasting live from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska. And you can see behind me, it was snowing earlier. It was spring yesterday, but it's snowing today. So I don't think uh, Mother Nature or the groundhog or whatever, they don't know what's going on yet. Uh, But I was hoping for spring, but it's not here yet. But I am blessed and fortunate enough to be uh, here with my co-host, Mark Shimkus, who is an intrepid BSW student as my co-host. How's it, Mark? It's good. Uh, I'm up here in Fairbanks, uh, starting starting for breakup, but uh, still have some snow on the ground, obviously. Got a little bit yesterday, too. But I'd like to say hi to our guest, G, G Ford. How you doing? How's it going? I'm pretty good. How you doing? All right, all right. Well, we got a great episode planned. Good, good. We got a little delay going on, so we apologize. I'll try to cut that out in the uh, when I produce the episode. But for now, there might be a little bit of a delay. Some of the problems we got in Alaska sometimes. Um, but yeah, we're spanned out all over the place. So I'm down here in Juneau, which is about, I think it's a th- almost a thousand miles south of Fairbanks. And then G's all the way down in Honolulu, downtown Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, so down there by the equator. Uh, well, like I said, we got a great uh, episode planned for you this morning. And I can't wait to get down to it. But before we do that, as always, there's a few things that we got to cover. Mark? So the project here is The Critical Social Worker. It's supported by the Social Work Department at University of Fairbanks in Alaska. However, we want to be clear that any opinions expressed on the podcast, be it the host, the guest, the listeners that call in, does not necessarily reflect the values of the Social Work Department, College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks or any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas shared belong to the speaker alone. All right. Well, that's important stuff because uh, we are opinionated folks sometimes. Um, and so if you don't like something that one of us says, I would advise you to take it up with the individual or address it during the podcast. Um, I'll give you my email address later if you need to contact me. But you can also call in later on, express any thoughts or concerns, or you can express it in the chat, whatever you'd like. Um, Just remember, our opinions are our own, and they, like Mark said, they don't represent any other organization. And with that being said, Mark, you mind sharing our mission statement as well? Yes, uh, Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding of all listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work work values, aimed to change ourselves, the world, one story. Thanks, Mark. And one of those underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. We here at The Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences 
and knowledge and wisdom. And we want to help unfold some of those layers through the stories so that we can learn and grow from them. Stories that help build critical consciousness. Yes, also, we want to uh, give a shout out to the University of Alaska Social Work Department, which is one of the highest rated BSW programs in the country, lowest in state tuition, no matter where you live. And it gives great indigenous perspective, ideas and ways of being. And it has a strong, caring facility and obviously it has strong, caring professors. Right on. And if you want to know more about the UAF Department of Social Work, just Google us. UAF Social Work is the easiest way to find us. You can also email me, too. Um, but what about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to tell your story, to share your stories? Please hit me up with an email if you are or if you have any concerns or anything that I mentioned previously. You can reach me at C-A-Stetler. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. Also, do you enjoy the social worker, uh, critical social worker? If you do, please support us by leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and you can make sure you follow us on this podcast calling. All right. Yeah. If you you like us, give us a review somewhere on Apple or Spotify. Put the word out. Um, all right. But before we get to our main event with G, I think we should take a look at our principles first. Um, and this first, the uh, our principle number seven is build community and connection. And so let's honor that principle in today's episode. As you'll hear in a moment, G and I have a relationship that has uh, steadily evolved over the course of half a decade or so as various events have unfolded in both of our lives. Furthermore, by having our good brother Mark here, one of my current students and also a veteran, it represents the beginning of a new cycle of relationship building and connection. So as we move forward in this podcast today, I challenge each of you here live, and I guess perhaps those of you listening afterwards as well, make an emphasis to make connection today. Create it. Devote some of your time and attention to it. Get connected to someone else, to nature, to somebody, to something. Be connected, live connected today. And with that, I think it's time that we get this episode officially started. Officially welcome to episode six of the Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. I'm your host, Christian, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark. How's it, Mark? Good, good. Uh, so, like I said, first time here on the podcast, co-hosting with you, loving it. I want to know a little bit more about G and 
I'll give him a little introduction here, that formal introduction. The man was born in Atlanta, Georgia, grew up with two sisters, two beautiful sisters from what I understand, and hardworking parents. Had some difficulty in high school, finally got through it when he went to military school, bounced around for a bit afterwards, had had a beautiful daughter. Then one, when the second beautiful daughter started coming up, he's like, I got to get some more stabilization. And he went to the military, went to the Marines in 2005, spent 12 years there, four different deployments. Then he changed his path once he got to Hawaii and be discharged from there, went to school, got his master's degree in social work in 2021, despite that pandemic we had. He earned his LSW, and now he's a great di dialysis social worker, you know. Right on. Thanks, Mark. And I want to add to that a little bit, because to, to, to me, G is so much more than that, so much more than a formal introduction could give him. And, uh, you know, I always say this on the podcast, but, a, you know, just a formal introduction for this type of show is just not enough. So I'm going to share a little bit more. Uh, I met G several years ago, maybe like five or six years ago, while teaching as an adjunct professor at, the, at Hawaii Pacific University in Honolulu. And G was part of an outstanding cohort of students that I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to connect with. And during our second year together in class, we were having a great time. Uh, we were moving forward with transformative learning experiences. I think all of us, especially the students, were getting ready to graduate, tackle the world. And then the pandemic hit and shut us all down. We didn't know what to do at that time, just kind of broadsided us. Um, but we persevered, and despite our main method of learning being the talking circle, being physically shut down, um, we improvised, and we finished. We, I don't think any of us had ever used Zoom or video conferencing in such a way at that time, but we persevered, and we, were, we adapted, um, and we finished the year strong, and, and all of those students in that cohort were able to graduate. And G, during that time, he was just a pillar of strength during the pandemic, he was, uh, like I said, a pillar of support for, for his peers. Um, you know, when many other people were kind of struggling and unsure, you know, G always met us with confidence and showed up every week, um, you know, ready to work, ready to learn, and ready to be a leader and support his, his peers and fellow students. But I got to say, G, when I first met you, there was a little bit of a different aura about you. You know, I think you had, from my uh, perception, you had like a, some lingering anxieties going on, and you were a little bit unsure of some things. But I have to say that ever since then, um, it's been a pleasure to watch you grow and see, you know, just like the, again, your aura, the way that the look, the feel you have about you, you know, grow into um, a more advanced stage to who you're becoming. I've watched you achieve two degrees in that time. You're now a professional master's level social worker on the way to uh, achieving your LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker. And I think um, all the stuff you've been through this to this point, you know, if I met you five years ago or so, and you had, like I said, this, you seemed like you had these lingering things of anxiety or unsure about something. I'm sure that, you know, if you go all the way back to your troubled youth days or your young adult days, that that was even more present in some ways. And so I want to know, you know, how did you come to be who you are today? How did you come to be this confident man, this professional social worker, you know, that navigates not just Honolulu, but the social work field, your relationships with confidence, with sincerity, with authenticity? 
what experiences made you into that man that you are today? Well, I first have to start by saying, hey, I appreciate both of you gentlemen for the kind words and the great introductions. Now, I'm almost feel like I need to be standing next to Steve Harvey sounding like this. <laughs> you got to make him sound good. But, yeah, no, I, I, I you know, it, it is weird. And when I kind of think about it and kind of go back, geez, it was, it was a pretty fun but crazy time growing up and all making it through all, all the way to this point. Um, you know, I, I, I do have a very um, strong and stable family. However, um, if you saw me outside of that house, it was completely different. Um, and that is because of um, a lot of the environment and experiences that I had to kind of go through, which kind of formed me into who I am. And so I can make a little bit more clarification to that. So my mom and my dad, um, they are very hardworking people, just like Mark said. Um, they bust butt. My dad was into real estate and rooming houses and stuff and providing um, um, places for the community. Um, he was part of um, a lot of the civil rights movements. He knew a lot of great leaders, um, Hosea Williams, for example. And my mom, uh, she worked at uh, Bell South when she started at 16, and that's where she retired at. She was another one that was very, very influential inside the community. So, you know, inside of the safe haven of my home, where we was brought up at, I mean, everything was great, you know, great teachings, you know, stuff like that but as soon as you walk out that door <laughs> you in the rough streets of Atlanta man and <laughs> you got to survive a different way that the, the way we was brought up it, it didn't work out there <laughs> so um that is a lot of kind of what um I guess for me into being who I am it uh kept me very humble on the inside and with a genuine and good heart and I guess that's how I led to be a social worker but then at the same time, I think it also formed a uniqueness of me to be able to, um, I guess, integrate myself with people from, you know, uh, for lack of better words, people that kind of are not in that great path. So, yeah, those are some of the things that kind of um, that kind of formed me. Uh, and not to mention, um, even though I was born in 1982, so coming up through the um, all coming into that 2000 year era, 1990s and into the 2000s, um, I still encountered a lot of racism in different areas outside of my community once I started to expand myself. So, you know, all of those things are the things that I kind of was seeing, kind of being a part of um, that really did kind of form me to be who I am. Yeah, right on. Well, Take us to like when you're a, when you're a young adult and you decide to join the Marines. Tell, tell us that story. Oh, so that was pretty weird in, the, in how that happened. So <laughs> I just actually brought me back to a good memory. So when I was a young adult, and this young adult was roughly about well, I was like twenty one, twenty two, probably at the time. Um, so prior to that, I actually had found my way into working um, for BP. So my ex-wife's father, he um, was a CAE, so basically a regional supervisor for all the BP gas stations, British Petroleums. On the West Coast, I think they call them ARCO, AM, and PMs, um, if you're not from the East Coast or from down South. So um, I started off working inside of the stores and everything as a uh, stock um, guy. So I was in the back doing stock in the shelves and cleaning the bathrooms and stuff. I mean, nothing out of the Nothing extraordinary, but they saw my work ethic, and then it was like, man, this guy worked really hard. 
And that's something that my dad taught me is just work hard at what you do. So, you know, I got a lot of notoriety and uh, kind of fast forwarding, I ended up becoming a store manager. So literally I had my own actual store. I ran it. I was the uh, general manager. I hired, I fired, did bank deposit, the whole nine, what that looks like. So everything was going um, pretty good at that time, which was really a big change for myself because, you know, <laughs> I was trying to get money in a totally different way before it was more legitly legal. Um, so um, I was working there and then they started to transition into um, into what they call dealers. And so when the dealers is private owned places where they just purchase the gas and then they privately run those stores. So kind of something, if you kind of think of like a franchise, something kind of similar to that. So I ended up started to lose um, my footing and being able to get a job because that job was about to get ready to go for me. And I had to figure this out. Not to mention um, I had my youngest daughter. She probably at this time was maybe two or three. So I'm like, man, what the heck? What do I do? So I decided, hey, I got I got to figure something out. So I ended up trying to join the Marine Corps. But I actually didn't try to join the Marine Corps at first. And that's why I say the story is funny because I really didn't know much about the military at all. So I went down to the – so my girlfriend's at the time, who is now my ex-wife's father, told me, hey, why don't you go join the military? I was like, ah, whatever. I'll go try this thing out because I'm, I'm down for anything. So I go down to the recruiting station, and when I get down there, um, I, I was walking up the, the pathway, and I went inside of – who was it first? It was the Air Forces I went into first. And I went and talked to them, and they basically was like, dude, you, you ain't made for this. You might well go on out the door. I was like, all right, cool, because I kind of gave them a little bit of the background of, about myself and some stuff that um, I will share because I, I had at that time still sitting behind me was a few felonies that were um, kind of lingering around, and I was kind of in limbo at that point. So um, I went to – who was it next? It was actually the Navy I went to next. And I told the same thing, gave my background. Hey, I got some some of this stuff on my back on my record. It was like, nope, we're not gonna touch you. So I walked right past the army's office, and as soon as I walked past the army's office, there was this guy standing outside. His name was Corporal Mack. And I'll be honest with you, I looked at this guy. He was in his dress blues. So go look up the dress blues. I was like, man, this dude looked ridiculous. What is this big old white cap on his head? <laughs> like I ain't even talk to this guy. And so and I walked right past. He was like, hey, where you going? I was like, um, I'm about to get ready to go home. He was like, why don't you come in and talk to uh, Gunny Lewis? I was like, for what, dude? Everybody else done turned me down. You ain't even finna be able to touch me. He was like, man, just come on in there and talk to him right quick. I said, all right, man, I'll go do it. So as soon as I walked in there, I walked straight up to Gunny Lewis, who I still talk to right now, man. He's a great guy, good mentor. I went to him, I said, man, I'm just telling you straight up, this guy pulled me in here. I have no idea why, because I got four felonies. Actually, it was, it was it was in conjunction. I had a bunch of charges with two of them that were um, considered as felonies. So, hey, you're not going to be able to do anything with me, so I don't know why you pulled me in. He said, man, wait a minute. I might can do something with you. I was like, what? He was like, yeah, I might can do something with you. I said, okay, let's go see. So kind of fast forward, this guy took me down to the courthouse, walked me into the court. Actually, he walked me into the courthouse in down in Atlanta, but not literally in the courtroom, but the courthouse, the building. He was like, hey, you stand by right here. I said, all right, I'll stand right here. So I stayed down there for about a good maybe 40 minutes. I don't know what he did, who he went and talked to, 
But he came back down to find me. He was like, all right, man, tomorrow morning, I need you to come back to the uh, recruiting office, man, because we're going to get you um, signed up into MEPS ASAP. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah, I went to talk to some people. You know, we're going to be able to get you in. So kind of a little bit of hindsight to that. I don't know who he talked to or what he did or what connections he had, but he talked to somebody who was willing to dead docket all of my cases and allow for me to join the Marine Corps. And as long as I go into the Marine Corps and I do good in that first uh, four years, they were not going to pursue me anymore. And that's how in the world I end up coming into the Marine Corps, which was pretty crazy and pretty extraordinary because it, it, it really turned me into, it, it really expanded more into my life and did much more for me. Um, that was needed and to help me get to where I am right now. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was laughing at your story about going to recruitment because similar time frame, you know, I went to, I didn't end up enlisting, but um, I went down, you know, get, gather information for a while and talk to a bunch of guys for a while. But I remember first time I went down there, all of them were just like you said, it was like a strip mall next to the grocery store. So they were all next to each other, right? So I was going to the army because I really didn't even understand, you know, military at that time. And so I just was going to the army. And so I walked over there and I'm going to the army and it was locked. The door was locked. And so the Marine, the guy in the Marines came over and he looked at me and he looked me up and down. And he's like, what are you here for? And I was trying to talk to the guy for the army. And he's like, you know what that stands for, right? He says, army just stands for aren't ready to be effing Marines yet. I started laughing. And so I ended up talking to that guy. My friend actually enlisted, but funny story. But, you know, another part of your story had me thinking. My first guest that I had on L.A. was a black guy from Chicago. And um, different story, but similar in that he had some charges pending, some felony, uh, felony charges. And somebody made an intervention and helped him out and got the charges uh, off of him and gave him, in his case, got him a job working with computers, which he stayed in for the next couple decades. Um but I guess, you know, I just want to emphasize, you know, as social workers, I know it wasn't social workers that intervene in either of your, your lives, but like social workers are in prime positions to make interventions. And you never know, like, where you might be able to help, help somebody and change their complete trajectory to something else. And so I want to emphasize that. But I want to ask you, have you ever thought about what, what would have happened, what you'd be like today, maybe, or what your life experience would be like up to this point had you went to prison instead? You know, I, I, I thought about those things. I think about it a lot because I go back home quite a bit. Um, well, I won't say quite a bit and definitely not as much as I should, but I do go home here and there when I can get the time and the money. But I go back home and I see a lot of my friends. Um, many of them are dead. Um, a lot of them are in jail. And then some of my other core guys, they, they're still hanging around but they still are just hanging around, you know? Um, so I do think about those kind of things and, um, you know, where life could have been. And then to be honest with you, I completely take that out of my mind and I continue to keep looking forward because I'm like, I was, I, I was lucky enough to have people, like you said, to intervene inside of my life at critical moments um, that helped change my path and the trajectory and to get me to where I am. So I do kind of think about those things, and I, I'll be honest with you, I immediately put it back out because um, it, it, it's not a, a good thought. Yeah, and, and it shouldn't be, you know. I, I think it's, I like to say that you ended up where you should have ended up. Um, nobody belongs, you know, ending up in, in a cage like that from my perspective. So I want, just want to say thank you to that, to that, uh, to that Marine recruiter that 
helped you out and got you out of there and got you a different opportunity because you never know. You probably don't end up as a social worker if you take that other route. Um, so how did the military, I know, don't go too much into this, but you know, um, well, let, let me leave that to Mark later. You know, you, you guys are going to have a connection that I don't have. So let's skip forward. Let's skip the military right now. And let's jump to how did you end up in Honolulu and why did you pursue a social work degree at, at Hawaii Pacific? So University? Honolulu actually ended up being my uh, last duty station. Um, and the time where I decided it, it was about that time to keep moving on. Um, so that was actually a pretty, it, it was a pretty dark time um, in that piece. A lot of things were kind of um, freshening up from the past um, experiences in and outside of the Marine Corps growing up. Um, and um, I ended up here because I chose to be here. So I, I, I remember telling my wife, who's now my ex-wife, I was like, hey, you know what? Um, where do you want to go next? Because my whole thing was I wanted to get my kids to experience things outside of just that little box of being in the United States. And I know that Hawaii is in the United States, so I don't want to sound crazy and I, Anybody that says they need a passport to come here, you don't need one because it is part of the United States. But um, I wanted them to kind of get outside of their shells and see other different things. I've been to Okinawa, Japan. I've been to the Middle East. I've been somewhere everywhere. So I'm like, they got, they got to see something. So I requested to come out here. And it ended up being a very, very good thing um, for me and good experiences for my family. But it ended up being also the downturn to um, my relationship um, and my family as well so um how i ended up here that's kind of how i ended up here is that i requested to come here but um some of the um, circumstances that happened got a divorce um kind of got in a little bit of trouble um unfortunately and then um it ended up being to where hey your path is about to change you need to make a decision do you want to keep fighting and stand in or do you want to just say you know what it's time to take a different direction i decided yeah it is time to take a different direction because some of the things that I was starting to experience at the time, um, um, emotionally, mentally, um, I wasn't receiving the help that I felt like I should have uh, received. And I remember putting into so much through all my junior Marines and stuff. And then when I needed the help as a staff NCO, there was nobody to turn to. And it was it was really terrible. I couldn't believe that it was like that. And it really hit me hard. Um, not just the things I was going through, but the fact that as a staff and still when I needed the help, there was nobody there to, to have my back. So I, you know, I took that turn. I said, I'm, I'm getting out. And then I started my, uh, my career. What brought me into social work was some of those previous experiences. And I started to think about, okay, what, what can I do? What do I want to do? I always had a passion for working with kids. I always had a passion for helping people out because people helped me out. And that's what said, you know what? You are here right now because of the people that jumped into your life and help steer you in a different way or the people that came into your life and shielded you from some of the things that you need to be shielded for or who threw their neck out on the line just to make sure that you stay on the right path. And I give all the glory to God for putting these people here, but these people came through for me. And so I said, you know what? I want to do that for other people. Yeah, that's a good answer. I appreciate that. So take us in to to undergraduate social work, HPU. It's a different type of experience than we're getting here at UAF. UAF's mostly online at this point. People are spread out all over. You know, Alaska's huge in itself. Um, but, you know, as uh, 
PSW, you know, our classes were in these downtown, in these small classrooms we all congregated. In our classes, we used um, talking circles, like I mentioned earlier. What was that experience like for you? And you did your practicum at, what was that place called? The, uh, so I did my practicum at Parents and Children Together. And then I also did, but my first practicum was the best. I did it at um, Adult Friends for Youth. Man. Yeah, that's the one I wanted to mention. Uh, and real quick, just a moment, a quick moment of silence for Mo. Passed away, a mentor for many people. So I just want to give two or three seconds to Mo. Um, yeah, uh, Mo is definitely missed. Mo was actually, to show you the, how everything is circular uh, and reciprocal, is that when I met my wife, Alicia, she was in her practicum with um, Adult Friends for Youth. Um, and her her supervisor was Mo. And then I, later on, I'm teaching G's class and he gets in there and then his, at least to some degree, was working with Mo. And like I said, unfortunately, Mo passed away. But what was your experience like both as an undergraduate at HPU? Like what was, what did you like? What did you learn? And what were the, maybe the methods that you liked that helped prepare you to become a social worker? And also talk about your experience at Adult Friends for Youth. Basically, you can talk more about it, but Basically, G was working with uh, youth that were involved in gangs for the most part within the school system. Um, so, can you talk a little yeah, bit more um, about that? And you know, all respects to Mo, man. Mo, he, that's that's a that's a different guy. You know, that, that, that is a different guy. He's made different. And um, Mo, very similar um, to some other people who make changes in their life. Mo had um, things that happened in his past, and I'm not here to speak on his behalf, just kind of sharing with you um, what how, what great of a guy. So I'm not going to go into many details and stuff like that. But Mo had a past, and Mo changed that around. And Mo went into the community and literally was changing the lives of people, many people who really needed that extra hand. I'm talking about not changing the lives of just the average and normal people. I'm talking about the people, like Christian said, that are involved in drugs, involved in gangs, who are out there killing, stealing, robbing. I mean, and he he was literally in the community. Some of these places that you would not drive through, Mo would go through, and it's like the see what part, you know. Hey, this guy is legit to come through here. Nobody took, nobody said anything. He can come in here and talk to our kids and come back out and nobody mess with him. And then unfortunately, um, he, you know, when we say he passed, um, that was pretty sad for me. So all respects to Mo. But he taught me um, uh, quite a bit. So Adult Friends for Youth, um, that experience was really fun because I got to work with kids that were just like me growing up. <laughs> now we didn't have gangs and everything where I was from, but we had our neighborhoods and what we, we was just hood against hood. And so, you know, gangs kind of evolved and things, but these kids were out there and what I kind of saw inside of um, their communities is some of the same things. It's just a lot of the, um, you know, leadership, not, I don't want to say leadership, it sounds military. A lot of people who could, influence these kids and change their lives and be there to help teach them, groom them and stuff like that. They are there. It was very similar to what I, my experience was. As soon as you got in trouble one time and sent to the principal's office, they write you off. You know, the teachers, they treat you differently. They, they look at you differently. They, they don't, you know, they, they, you'll never make it. They don't put any effort into it. It's like, forget those kids. I'm going to work with those. And it's crazy because if you can see me without hearing my backstory, 
you'll be like, man, this guy does all these different things. Yeah, I was one of those kids, though, you know, and because somebody took that time to put into me, that's the reason why I'm able to, I was able to make it there. So there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. Just needed somebody to be there because people was writing me off and the same thing for those kids. So that's why it was so fun to be with those kids. I mean, I work with, and I'm sure many people are familiar with the island, but um, we used to go from all the way to Nanakuli to Waianae side, which is the rough side. They call it the west side. All the way to Central Town, where we working with the Farrington and a lot of the kids in the other high schools, many different cultures. So from Micronesian to Tongan to Pali, we have Samoans, we have um, just regular Hawaiians, uh, Filipino. I mean, it's it it it's like a melting pot of just greatness of people in different cultures and everything. And so, um, yeah, we went into the schools. And we got in there and we would just completely work with those kids and help teach them different things. But what I like the most about Adult Friends for You, it was completely non-judgmental and not and, and we wasn't there to like to force direction to these kids. It was to build a relationship and kind of do more of a modeling behavior, which was really effective because you know, when you're trying to go in and you're judging, you're pointing and telling what you can and can't do. As social workers, even we know, I mean, we're, we're not the, we don't know it all inside of each and every person. The, each individual knows the best thing for them. So when you kind of go in there with that, you know, that stern direction, like you need, you need, you need to do this or you should, you know, it really doesn't work that well, especially with these kids. And um, going in there, just kind of hearing their stories, understanding and supporting them. And if they want the different direction, then you will help guide them. And you would just model the different things, and they really took into this. So, uh, I don't know if I completely answered your question, but I mean, it was a it was it's a lot that was going on there that was really good and a very good experience. So, um, yeah, it, it it was awesome. It was awesome. Man. Yeah, and so I, obviously one side of that is you know you going in there as a mentor and helping them out, but um, anybody that knows me with the way I teach or practice social work is I believe that again going back to reciprocity is that. You just don't be a mentor and provide things for them. They also provide things for you, and they help you out. And so I, was, I had two questions. One, just to honor Mo, Mo just one more time, what's something that, he, that you learned from him that we could pass on to help other people? And what, el what else did you learn from those kids that you worked with? Um, what what I learned from Mo is that you judge nobody. You give everybody the opportunity and the chance. And you respect everybody for who they are. You know, you don't judge, you respect them for whoever they are. And if they need help, you help them, regardless of what other people look at and think. And no matter what other people say, you do what you feel is right in the moment. Because many people had different ideas and thoughts about, you know, us being with the kids and all this other, Mo didn't care. He was like, man, I don't care. These kids need me. And even more so, um, and wish more respects to Mo, um, be there for them. I, I just learned just to be there for people regardless. Not saying shut yourself aside, but be there for people when they need it. That, that, that's just the main message that he taught me. And it, it's as simple as it sounds, it's much more impactful and much more powerful. You know, if we had one person that had that same mentality for just one other person, gosh, you just think about it. Really? Everybody be taken care of. There'll be somebody there for somebody. And for the, and 
from the kids, kids what you learn from them? um you know the the main thing I, I learned from the kids is that um be open to it it's it's almost like the same message that i same thing I learned from the kids you know it, don't judge these kids have different back different things going on I tell you actually what i what I kind of learned from these kids is don't judge a book by its cover um Give it time to kind of understand because a lot of these kids are in this position because of a lot of different things that are going on in the environment, whether it be, you know, family things, whether it be neighborhood things. You know, what I learned from them is that, you know, there's much more to this story than just what you see on the outside. And if you're willing to kind of open your mind and look deep down, you'll find a lot of greatness sitting inside that rough exterior. Yeah, and I think one of the problems that we often run into as social workers, people that are working in social work, is we want, especially when we work with, with like, say, kids or anybody, but that's outside of our life experience, our zone, you know, our cultural zone, then we expect them to be like us, or we have these expectations that they should adapt and be like us. You know, I worked at um, my first experiences as a social worker where – Uh, working at a treatment facility with troubled youth from around the United States. You know, uh, I mentioned this last week, but we had native indigenous kids from Alaska, Hawaii, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana. And then we had black kids from back east, like Chicago, Washington, D.C. Then you had white kids from from all around. Um, But the biggest problem that I saw, you know, in a place like Utah, that's real homogenous, you know, the Mormon religion, people tend to think the same way, is that the worst the, peop- the worst kind of social worker that worked in that environment were the ones that weren't able to see things from the kids' perspective or weren't even willing to, like, think about it or put themselves there. And so they always had these unrealistic expectations for these kids to act and behave in a way that they knew nothing about and that they were never going to do that. No matter what you did to them or how much you punished them or what rewards you provided for them, they were never going to be that and they were never going to do that. So I was wondering if you had any more thoughts about that. Like, what did you do to, like, did you ever find times where you struggled with that? And how did you bring yourself to a better place? Uh, but, you know, what are some skills that we can use to, to listen to the people that we're working with and to empathize with them, put ourselves in their shoes, which can be hard, but put ourselves in their shoes as much as possible. And even if we can't quite get there, we can still listen and empathize with them and support them. Like you said, be there for them. You have any any uh, thoughts or strategies Actually, skills to share? You you spoke it out, you know. You you really just just put it there. It's to listen and be understanding and not judge. When you do that, then you, you and you are empathetic to the where you literally want to understand what it is they're experiencing. You that door opens up and kind of helps you to see where you can actually help them out, and it's done in a couple ways one that relationship is built because now they trust you they know that okay you now understand hey you know my mom you know they my mom used to beat me my father was on drugs the streets raised me you get it you know and that, and to be honest with you it, it shouldn't be embarrassing but society if we let's be real the society impression that should be embarrassing right so people don't want to share that, but you not judging that gives them the first opportunity to kind of peel back the onion and start to expose who they are to you. So you can really kind of say, hey, you know what? Now I understand why, you know, when 
you know, a, a, a woman comes over here and she's real forceful. Either you shut down or you want to fight back because that's what you that's what you experience with your mom beating you and things. You know, I see why you know you're comfortable. You know, being out with with the riffraff out in the streets because they used to actually protect you. I get it now. Because you were scared to even be inside your own home. So you went on the streets and they was the ones that showed you love and did things. Now it makes sense. So those skills is literally first just starting with the humble mind and the open mind to want to listen and truly understand. Not assuming. I'm not assuming. I'm not judging. Hey, I really want to understand what this was like for you. And then the second part of that is, you know, don't figure you can just tell somebody how they can make it happen or to say, you know, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Help them to understand from their perspective what they may need to do because there are certain things that they need to do differently to help them to get to where they are. And I'm only, and of course, this is a little bit outside of working with kids, but when you kind of think of, for example, domestic violence, for example, you know, the person that's going through the, the, the situation understands best how they can help get out of there. But if you try to interject and tell them, hey, you need to do this, this, and this, they may end up really getting hurt because they really know how to get out of it. So if you take the time and listen to these kids and listen to people and understand what they're kind of projecting to you or what they need help in, that's how you give them those steps. Because most of the time we've already made it to a certain point where, you know, so we can think and think fast straight through it. We already know where the end goal is at. You know, but for them, they got to take small steps to get to where it is. So it's those small achievements. And so the way that you're kind of directing them may just be the end goal. It's like, hey, you need to do this, this, and this, this, I was going to get there. Not really. You know, it, it takes more steps than that. So I think those are two things and a couple ways that you can kind of, um, I guess, work with populations um, that are less fortunate to help them to achieve something different and something better. Yeah, what about like if you're considering like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, and you're working with just, just stay on the same the same category or category the same group of kids that you work with, um, you know, what do you do when say you want to help them and they're struggling, but oftentimes their basic needs are not being met, so it's really hard to help them become who they need to be to be successful. The things that are outside of your control as a counselor, or a mentor, or as a social worker, you know, you can only in most cases, do so many things. And so have you had, did you ever run into situations like that? And how um, did you yeah, to that? actually. So one safety, you know, that's a basic, one of the basic needs, um, food, some of the basic needs, regular, um, soap and things. So I give you, um, actually a story, a true example and everything. So one, I, I did a, I, what did I do? I did, it was something I was doing with, it was like a, I forget it was a game or something I did, but I was like, Hey, you know what? We're going to do a game. And then, you know, we're going to do this game and then I'm going to give you guys some prizes. And I, I don't remember what it was, but the game had an objective to kind of model and teach and show them something different in kind of a, a non-directional way, like we said. Um, but they were able to play the game and experience this and it taught them something. So after that, I gave them um, some prizes. And so funny, my girlfriend, she, she likes to coupon and everything and she'll get hundreds of all kind of different things and so it was toothpaste and um a soap and a few other things 
forget what it was. And I was like, man, we got all this crap inside the house. We don't even need it. And I thought it, it was, it really, I really didn't understand what I was doing at the time. So just, just bear with me. So I took all this soap and I took all these um, toothpastes and I was like, this, we need to get rid of this crap. We ain't got enough room in this condo for all this extra soap and everything. We will never use this in a year. So I was going to throw it away, but I'm like, whatever, I'm going to give it to the kids because it really don't mean anything. You know, like, at least to us, I don't care about this soap and this toothpaste. I gave that to them for, as their prize. Man, it was like I gave them gold. And I was like, and when I got home and I kind of thought through it and I talked to my girlfriend about it. We started to realize that we just gave them an opportunity to not only have things that they don't really have, but also to be a provider for their family. So now they felt good about themselves because they was able to do something for their family also. And it was so, it, I mean, when I took a step back and really thought, I'm like, wow, that was very, very impactful to be able to um, not only do that for those kids, but to really see and to humble myself and say, wow, basic needs are, are serious. And like, here's ways that you can help people. And even still now, I can't just completely verbalize the knowledge that came out of there because it, it truly was there. But if you can follow me and kind of understand that people that don't, they're, they're living on snap, they're, they're living on snap, barely getting any food. They can't pay their rent. So they're paying $25 a month and they can barely do that. And that's through government assistance. Right. So just think of the things that they don't have and just being able to receive those basic things and provide that for their family. I think we can all kind of understand, wow, what kind of impact that created for not only the family, but that kid too. And then to help them to see, wow, you know what? I didn't have to go out today and go and rob somebody or go and steal something out the store and potentially get in jail. Because now we got a little bit of toothpaste and we got a little bit of soap. And there was a few other things I gave them. So what they did was now we don't have to spend our money on that. We have a little bit extra money to put towards somewhere else. So if you think about that in a whole nutshell, because people that, you know, end up kind of doing things for survival. When we look at Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, survival is survival. So if I got to eat, I'm going to eat some kind of way. Whether it's going to be I worked and I got it, and if I can't work because it's not there or affordable for me, I'm going to take it because I got to eat. I mean, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to starve. So when you think about that kind of impact that's having for people and helping to provide those basic needs, it does go um, a long way in in the theory of using Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah, you know, if you kind of assess those things and you um, kind of identify where those shortfalls, shortcomings are at inside of people's lives and help them to either achieve or be able to provide for themselves to get those things, it, it's game changing. Yeah, you remind me, you know, Bob Marley lyrics. Uh, he's talking about we got a pot to cook but no food to eat. He said, you know, he's talking about the government and the powers that be, but he's talking about, you know, when you when you don't have any food to eat, your brother becomes your enemy, you know, because like you said, by any means necessary, if you're hungry, your brother's usually the closest one to you, your neighbor, whatever. Um, so that's where, and I think that epitomizes some of the struggles that those boys have, right? Because even sometimes at school and whatnot, they don't feel safe, right? Because there, I, I remember they're always worried about retaliatory acts, which actually happened, um, you know. It was a serious, uh, a serious and relevant and real concern of theirs. But another thing that you mentioned, you know, was kind of how you empowered those kids, you know, with the toothbrushes and whatnot. I think that's a, a big thing. Um, it brings me back to when I was working back again at Cottonwood Treatment Center with all these kids. 
And uh, people used to think I was crazy, you know, the way that I worked with the kids over there. And it's what made me successful. But everyone kind of viewed those kids as like powerless and hopeless. I shouldn't say everyone, but most of the people there. And they didn't really ever give them any responsibility or empower them. Um, and so I remember we didn't have enough money to do like outings to take them out and go do things in the community. So I was like, well, okay, I'll fundraise. And they're like, what are you going to do? I'll hold the car wash and have the kids help me. And, you know, people will come because it's a treatment center. I'll have them hold signs out there and whatever. Like, you can't trust those kids with that. You can't put them out on the, you can't let them stand out there. And you can't, you know, let people come, come in here and stuff that this is just going to go bad. And uh, I was like, you guys, you guys just got to trust me and let me do this. And so we would hold these car washes where, you know, I'd have the, the kids would make signs and they'd go out there and they'd hold signs and saying we're having a car wash and, and people would stop. And I remember the biggest conflict, came, like these were extremely successful and we did all these outings and stuff. But despite all their success and stuff, I remember they called me into Monday morning staff meetings because I had a car wash over the weekend. And they're like, you let Raimundo handle the money? Like... You are, I mean, you just basically like could have had this hope. He, he could have plotted it for everyone to run away and they'd had money to do whatever and all this stuff. And I was like, did he? I mean, I trusted him and he trusted me. And that's why that relationship worked. If I didn't treat him like that, if I didn't trust him and empower him, he would treat me like he treats you all and not treat me like he treats me. He's not going to run on me because there's this mutual trust. And I'm not saying there's no chance or whatever. I had, I made mistakes too where, you know, people where the kids did things that, you know, kind of uh, betrayed me in certain ways. But for the most part, you know, it's the simple laws of life, this reciprocal nature of respect. And if you show them respect for their being, you show them trust. And especially if you had an opportunity to build it up, it really, really works. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, any more examples of, you know, building you know, trust. It, I do have thoughts on that because you just make you just reminded me of other situations where it was kind of very similar. People was like, you going to take these kids here and do this or you going to do that? And that's one thing that I appreciate about Adult Friends for you and Mo and what they created. We had our, we had vans that we would just go pick the kids up. And like, and it was so crazy when I go back because in the beginning, just I didn't realize that we were doing anything. So I thought we were just going out having a great time. <laughs> like, hey, man, this is the coolest thing. I just go and hang out with these kids. And then I get in my van, I drive my van over here and pick them up, take them to go to the waterfalls and stuff. But it, it's it, what that was doing is completely different. And like you were saying, you know, getting that trust um, and, and having them to trust you, I think that's a part of what's missing. And the reason why, um, I guess, they get misdirected because no one ever entrusts them enough to empower them to be able to make the right decision. They make one mistake, like I said before, and then you're written off. And then you're given no more chances. And if you make a mistake, which we are kids, we're supposed to make mistakes, right? We make another mistake and then they hit you twice now. And then you make another mistake and they hit you four times. Like you, you never learn and, and get that positive reinforcement when you do do things right. And that's something that you provided for those kids, you know, giving them that positive reinforcement for doing things right and showing them, hey, we, we can go out here and we can do these things and great. That was a good time. You guys did good. We can do this again. Kind of same for my kids. And funny story, I went to the school and um, it, I don't, I'm not even going to say names. That's not even fair. But I was working with a couple of these counselors at the school and it was my first time going there. And it was like, hey, um, well, how come you here? And I was like, oh, I came to pick up my kids. It was like, oh, well, you, you need to go get in the line. I said, 
Oh, no, 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 not my, my biological kids. Like, I came to pick up my kids. Like, the kids I worked with, like, oh, who are you? And I told the gator story, saying, dope friends for youth and everything. Oh, they kind of knew who he was and everything. But we didn't have a physical relationship with that school to go into schools. Some schools we did. But this school we didn't because they, I guess they didn't want to, I, I don't know why we couldn't go into the school. There's a lot of things I'm not, I don't even know why this was there. But either way, we still would go through and pick up the kids in the evening, uh, sorry, after in the afternoon after school and take them out for outings too, right? So when I went there, I started, you know, I started to know who these counselors were. And so they would let me come and hang out inside their office in a nice, cool um, AC while I'm waiting for the bell to ring. So when I went in there, I uh, was like, hey, I'm waiting for my kids again today. And so me and the lady, we walked out and we was talking. And then the bell rings and the kids were coming out. And then one of the kids, they saw me and they were so happy. And they ran up to me and they was like, hey, G, G, G. And then the other one came up and was like, hey, hold on a second. Don't you see G talking? He talking to a, he talking to adults. Wait a minute. And then she stopped and was like, and I was like, what's wrong? She was like, did you see what just happened? I was like, what do you mean? She was like, I have never seen that kid with any kind of manners. I was like, oh, well, that's just how they act when they're with me. And I didn't realize, because I'm not there inside of, you know, the classrooms with them every time. We'll pull them out for groups and stuff. And so she was explaining to me, like, he's, he's curses at me. He does these different things and all this different stuff. How did you do that? I was like, I show him respect. And they respect me. So it's kind of in the same sense, you know, when you when you when you respect the kids, you you show them that you do care. They 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 do, they trust you, and they don't they typically will not do anything to break that relationship with you because you're kind of almost the only person that's that's been there to find the chance. So that was one experience. Another experience, like we would we would go to like um um Sherwood Forest. I mean, I know you remember Sherwood Forest to other places and like my kids and so i'll be honest like just like african americans in certain places micronesians are kind of looked that way here in hawaii it, it's just the truth of what what things are um and so i will go there and i have like 15 you know of these kids with me and we'll be out going places we'll stop and get something to eat and you'll see that like people will get all nervous because i got 15 um micronesian kids with me and they're all scared and everything but at the same time, they can't stop looking because they're like, these kids aren't acting all crazy. We'll go to like Costco, for example, and get, you know, I buy a whole box of pizza and then they'll sit down. They'll, I'll be like, hey, all right, you go get the plates. You, you do this. You get napkins for everybody. And like I, I could literally like observe people just standing there watching in disbelief. Like I have never seen a bunch of these kids behave that way. What kind of voodoo is he putting on them? But it, it was like that. And when they was with me, they would—I mean—they would clean up after themselves. Of course, they get a little bit rowdy, and I'm like, "Hey, guys, hey, cursing, let's keep that down." Look, we are around people. When we get in the van, you know, it's whatever you want to do. But yeah, just just a couple of stories to kind of show, you know, like you said, if if you give people the respect, you give people that inch, because you know, you get that word. You know, if you give a, uh, something an inch, they'll take a mile. If you think about it, yeah, I want you to take that mile, a mile of goodness. I'm going to give you an inch so that way you can take a mile of great learning and positive, you know, things that go inside of your life. It can go both ways in that concept. Yeah, I appreciate your stories. And then, you know, we're talking about troubled youth, but 
this extends not just to, to just to to troubled youth. Um, you know, when I did my uh, graduate practicum, I did it at uh, Kualoha Olamau, the methadone clinic. So working with heroin addicts, opioid addicts. Um, and when I got there, I can't remember the exact timeline, but first of all, one blessing that I had there was that my supervisor, she believed in me. And so like I was different than the other counselors there and they were counter to the way that I operated, but she believed in me. So she gave me the trust and the freedom to do what I needed to do. But there was this group of guys there, uh, males and females, but they were considered like the troubled ones. They'd been kicked out of the other groups. You know, they could come and get their medicine, their methadone, but they weren't allowed to participate in any of the groups or any other things that they did. And so I was talking to my supervisor, Lisa, and she's like, yeah, why don't you try to create a group with these guys? And so I remember I was talking to the other counselors, one in particular, and he's like, Christian, this will never work. These guys, I've had to kick them out. You know, they sit in there and they curse in my meetings. Even when we just watch them have movie time, they cursing and being disrespectful and whatever, and it's not going to work. And well, the guy that he was saying was the most disrespectful was the guy that showed up early to set up my chairs, set up my tables, make coffee for everyone else. And it was simply because I just gave them the freedom and, the res- and gave them, I gave them some freedom, but I also gave them responsibility and made them, you know, it was their responsibility to make sure that, that, that our group worked, you know, everything from, you know, being an active participant, but also setting it up and whatever. And like I said, they not only participated, but they went above and beyond. They, those guys would, the most troubled ones would be the ones that they would basically fight to get there earlier to set the thing up, if that makes sense. Because they wanted to be helpful. And then there's another place called, um, called uh, Ho'olu Aina. It's up at the very top of uh, Kalihi Road, as far as you can go. And uh, I was taken there as a graduate student, but then I, basically it's a, a native Hawaiian place where they do a lot of cultural activities, but their main uh, thing that they do is they take out all the invasive plants and trees and whatnot and replace them with native uh, species. And they use the other stuff for good purposes, like, for example, building, uh, they use the bamboo to build uh, um, fences to keep out the pigs from the taro, things like that. But anyway, so I was going to take these heroin addicts up there. Uh, my, we called them Hamana, our students. And uh, again, the other counselors are like, you can't take these guys up there. Look, this guy can barely stand up. You know, they're real medical Ooh. people that have been using opioids intravenously for decades and decades and uh, hunched over and whatever. And you know what? I took them up there and they were up there with the Kapuna, the native Hawaiian elders. And, uh, you know, they couldn't really do that much work, but they worked their asses off up there. They wanted to seem like they were working and they sat there and they listened to the stories. And so like I could have easily written them off like most people in society had done. And, you know, and just to put it into real perspective, I saw the main guy that I'm talking about later on when I moved back to Hawaii and he was like so far gone, couldn't even walk, hunched over, could barely make it. Uh, I saw him, couldn't even get across the street. So I didn't solve his problems and I didn't fix him, you know, but what I did in those situations was provided him an opportunity to live as himself. Um, as a meaningful contributor to the things that we were doing, to the groups that we were, were facilitating, to going up there and helping on the, with the Aina, the land. Um, and that was meaningful to them, and it allowed them to be normal people that were respected and contributed. Um, and so it was that simple. Um, and again, like I didn't solve those guys' problems. We were talking about earlier, too, before we started the podcast, where G and I first met was downtown Honolulu. We had our the old Hawaii Pacific University campus. I don't know if they still have classes there, but they were trying to phase it out. But downtown, like right in basically where all the uh, 
the drug addicts congregate. And so I'd see all my old Hamana, my old clients there as I prepare for class. Um, but I, again, I don't look at those things as failures. I look at them as, you know, provide an opportunity for people, however short term they may be. Um, but especially like G mentioned in the sense of working with youth, with kids, you provide, you know, an opportunity for them, not just in that space, but perhaps they can grow with that by providing that space and giving them that, that extra length. That makes sense. Well, I want to pivot for just a minute. Um, what did I want you to talk about your educational experience at Hawaii. You did both your bachelor's and your master's at Hawaii Pacific University. So a couple of questions, and you can answer these in any way you want, but how, what was the experience like for you? What were the, you know, what methods in the classroom or, or, you know, teaching, learning, what helped you the most to prepare you to become a social worker and a better human being? What things didn't you like? You know, would you think that social work education needs to improve? What was it like going to the same university for both? You know, a lot of places or people are going to encourage you to switch it up and go somewhere else for different experiences. Um, yeah, what was your overall experience? Oh, Tell overall us about experience it. experience was good. You know, I, I, I never been to college or anything, so um, it was definitely – um, not I, not what I expected, but then at the same time, I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> so um, um, like you was mentioning, the dynamics of uh, Hawaii Pacific University is a little bit weird. It's not like a, um, a actual campus that most people traditionally be used to. Our campus was spread amongst one side of the island. So if you go to the Windward side, we had the um, the Kaneohe campus over there. Then we had a we had the Fourth Street campus that he was mentioning. That's literally on Fourth Street Mall. That's it's in the middle of town where you were saying a lot of drug addicts and stuff are at. It's, we're we're right in the heart of the city, and that's where our classes are at. So you walk out of your class, and you're in the city. Like what? This is weird. And then the dorms were are further down at Aloha Tower. And then eventually they opened up some classes over at, um, uh, gosh, I forget the name, you know, the area, I forget the name of the building over by um, the old club and uh, Ruth Christus over there. But that was the weird part because it was, it, it, it didn't feel like I was going to school until I got into the class. So the, the journey going to class, like, I didn't feel like I was in class yet. Oh, sorry. Then there was another, remember they, they had the other, um, campus part by the post office yeah so it was so strange you would walk th through different parts of the city and then just walk into a random door and then you inside of a classroom so that was strange <laughs> to start with um but my experience was was good though and i i, I one thing I, I like about the experience i had there and just kind of comparing it to some other people from other bigger universities is that our cohorts and our classes were really small so that really gave us a lot of time to really interact with not only just each other, but with our professors. So that was one of the parts that I really appreciated was, um, I think one of the better parts of the learning experiences was the fact that our teachers, our professors were able to engage with a smaller um, number of people. So we got to ask the questions that we need. We got to go deeper into um, different you know, things um, and get further understanding because you weren't trying to teach it to this big auditorium of people and everybody's scared to talk. It was almost like being a family with a mentor that was mentoring you day by day. And if that makes sense, and if you can kind of see it instead of just sitting back and just getting lectured 
mean, you didn't really probably listen, you're just moving out. So it's really interactive. That was um, a couple of things that were really good about it. Um, other parts that was really good, and I, I say this a lot. I, I, Christian, you, you, you as a professor, you're something different. Like, I, I, I used to think to myself, like, does Christian like purpose like they, I'm going to find a way to do something completely different from the way that normal people do it because I just want to. Now, I know that's not you, but quite honestly, like, you really took the time to be creative and think about, you know, what other ways can we go and we teach and that people can get the message. And I say this by, you know, one thing I hated all the time was, hey, write, write, write this, write this essay on this, or write this, write this, write this, write this. And they're like, man, I ain't learning nothing by writing. I, I'll be honest, I hate writing. And, and I'm not learning anything by doing that. And I'm not learning anything by keep reading these big old book because every page that I read, I forgot the last page. But for Christian, it was completely different because it was really interactive. And like one thing that he was to do, for example, is like the talking circles where we would go around the circle and we would talk story or we would share experiences or however that may be. And we could ask questions and it really was completely interactive. You learned, I felt like you learned more from that than you did from the other way. So in a way to kind of make it make sense, you know, it's almost like taking a, a mechanics book and they say, Hey, I need you to fix this engine. And there's gonna be two ways you can do it. Either I can stand there and I can show you and teach you. and We can talk about how to do this or you can read this book and then you should know how to do it. Now, we can sit there and let that digest for a minute. What is the easiest way you think is going to be? Yeah, somebody teaching you along the way. And so that's what I like that was different about it was that it wasn't just all read this book, listen to the lecture and you got it. It was really interactive. And so those are some of the um, the fun experiences the small cohorts, the, the professors that we had that truly cared about us and really um, went that extra mile to kind of change up the dynamics of the regular structure of school and how people are used to being taught. And they really put the effort into making it different and giving you a different learning experience that um, kind of accommodated other different abilities that everybody had. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that experience because um, uh, we have people that will listen to this and people that are in the audience that are from the uh, Bachelors of Social Work cohort here and the um, that have went through rural human services that I went through, which is where I learned the talking circles. Um, and I, I talk about this all the time, but I'll continue to reiterate, you know, the reciprocal nature of things and the circular nature of things, because when I sat down in the talking circle, I hated them. So to go from that first day, this guy that hates education, hates talking circles, doesn't want to listen to anybody, um, participated in those talking circles for several years, and it changed me so much. It was so transformative for me that I was able to go to Hawaii and teach, you not teach, but uh, you call upon, invoke the talking circles um, to help students from, from uh, you know, a black guy from Atlanta, Georgia, to we had... Micronesian students, we had Native Hawaiian students, we had ex-military or uh, military veterans, we had, you know, a lot of non-traditional students, older guys. We we're talking about Hector earlier, um, and pretty much unanimously, when I because I did a, uh, I've been you know trying to turn this into a research project for a while, the talking circles, and you know when we had, do you, I don't know if you remember, but we had a focus group where we talked about the talking circles that I used for a little uh, preliminary research thing. But all you, all, every single one of you from all of my classes 
testified to the how much the talking circles meant to them in these social work classes. Um, and it's the again the method is very simple. It's just a, an idea of philosophy, but by creating that space and that opportunity, it allows everybody to, you know, strength or excuse me, it allows everybody to be themselves, but to create unity collectively and to grow together. So everybody is increasing, you know, their their individual consciousness. But as a group, you know, we all grew together as well and elevated that way, especially, you know, when we traversed the pandemic. Um, obviously, that that uh, caused a lot of problems in the field of education, but it hit us right in the middle of it, you know, as we're doing literal talking circles and we figure out a way to push it through. Um, but, yeah, what about I had uh, one more question, you know, sometimes we did uh, I think we did it twice a semester or at least once a semester, but we had class. You mentioned Sherwood Forest. I think we did it at Sherwood Forest one time. Um, we would combine the different class, social work classes that I would teach, and we would uh, not have our, our regular class in the classroom, and we would instead congregate like on a Saturday at somewhere like Waimanalo Beach, Sherwood Forest. I think we met at Kaimana Beach the other time. Um, how did that impact your learning, being able to you know, gather with the other classes, so do something different, which we did talking circles and other activities activities there but also being able to do it outside and connect with the island with the land you know it, it took it took the pressure off of it being in a classroom setting that 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 pressure feeling i don't know it's it it's a little difficult to explain but i'll put it in this way being outside in nature or being outside of that structured place does open your mind and your ability to be more relaxed and more receptive to the things that are coming right and it comes very easy and and the integration with other classes people who you haven't had the opportunity yet to um, share any experiences with um, and then to get information from them or hear how things are going it, it really makes it easy but being in that open environment and being able to bring a few snacks and stuff and make it relaxed made it feel comfortable so nobody felt shame or anything and nobody was afraid to talk and um, everybody wanted to participate because it felt good. So I think just like changing the environment made gave you a different perspective and gave you more ability to kind of open up and really want to receive and feel and, and, and be a part of it. You know, it's like if you're inside of a classroom, it feels one way, but if you go to a party, you know, or, you know, an event, Obviously, your mood changes, and so it's 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 a different feel, but it definitely works out, um, and it makes it, it makes for learning. I think to be received a lot easier and soak in um, because you're comfortable in what that looks like and what that feels. Yeah, appreciate that. So I want to shift it again, um, and I'm going to turn it over to Mark in just a minute, but. I wanted to, again, talk about reciprocity, circular, like the circular logic of being a professor and a student, for example, that relationship. So G, met, G and I met when I was an adjunct professor. I've, um, and G was a junior, I think. So I had him in the junior cohort and then the senior cohort. And then since then, I've become a full-time professor. G has gone on and graduated not only with his BSW, but went on. Did you do the advanced standing program? Advanced standing. So he went on. HPU got his uh, uh, MSW with the advanced standing. And uh, now he works at the job my wife left so we could move to Hawaii in her position, working with dialysis uh, patients. 
And you can talk about that if you want, but I'm not going to ask you about it right now, uh, what it's like to work with Dallas patients. What I want to emphasize here is how, like, the, the fluid nature of relationships. So, you know, obviously, as college students, we're all adults. So it's different than the relationship, say, you know, in high school or middle school, where it's an adult and a, and a juvenile. And so at first, you know, you have to have these certain boundaries as professor student, you know, they're different, but you have to have them. So there's a level of, of respect and, and integrity that goes along with the relationship. You know, the, even though I share power in the classroom, I do have power over the students. I give them the grade. I mean, I don't give them the grades, but I can, you know, I enter them in. I have the responsibility and the power to provide the, the curriculum and the teaching for the most part. But, you know, that shifts over time. And, you know, maybe, you know, a, a, one example of this, it could go from, you know, me teaching for you, then you asking me for a letter of recommendation. I do you a favor in that way. You know, you go on, you get your degree, and then um, full circle. So now you're receiving supervision from my wife, Alicia, as you go on to pursue your LCSW, and you're contributing to my podcast at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so, like, everybody's helping each other out and creating this dynamic um, that's ongoing that allows us all to help each other achieve their goals and the successes that they're looking for in in social work and in life. And um, I just wanted to emphasize that as, you know, new relationships are being built, you know. I've met Mark last semester. He's been an excellent student in my class, different than G, but similar in the way that he's able to contribute via his life experience and his wisdom and his knowledge. And so here's a new relationship being built, and who knows where that goes. Um, But now here, I'm connecting you two right now, and hopefully – you know, you can use your military experience and, you know, you're, you know, you, you, you're both non-traditional social work students, you know, come into it later in life as veterans, veterans, not only of the military, but veterans of life, which is evident through the way that you all are able, you know, Mark, through chatting with the blogs and G through chatting through the talking circles have demonstrated. And so I want to connect you all to, and I want to turn it over to Mark and I want to, um, you know, hopefully you'll discuss the military and other things, uh, I want to give you some time, Mark, to Mark and G, to discuss whatever you would like. All right. So I'll say this: I will go into the military thing because uh, it does bring a lot of value. Some of that it has a culture onto itself. I mean, an OG, uh, you were in the Marines, so it's kind of like. It's it's that family, that culture of the military, but yet you have Marine dialect where I had the Army dialect, you know, kind of thing, you know. Uh, so, and going through those years, going through those that time and meeting those people, meeting everybody, uh, going through those, those deployments, uh, and because that, that brings a big camaraderie with people and everything like that. So... With that culture and all that experience you had through there, coming up through the ranks, learning, mentoring, leading, and everything like that, how do you feel with uh, those values? And tell us a little bit about you know those deployments, how you felt with those guys and, and guys and girls, you know, and through kind of up through all, that, those, all those twelve years, you know, and maybe have a little story about where you were but how those values and kind of things that you'd learned in the military 
come over to social work and, you know, kind of like not leaving someone behind, you know, especially in a war zone, you know, those type of things. Can you explain? I'd, I'd like to know your view on that. Um, you know, one of the things that really um, I appreciate about the military and what that brings into social work um, was the ability to be forced. And I say forced and not in, I'm not saying in a bad way, but being forced to being around a whole bunch of people that you ain't never probably ever be around in your entire yeah. life. I remember being at boot camp and it, it, this is a funny story. I've been being at boot camp and my boy Limke, that was his name. Kind of looks similar to you, husky, Caucasian dude. You know, I was a thin, short African-American guy in there. And, man, I remember one thing. It was, it was on the right. Like, Lipke, was, he was from a different breed. I was from a different breed. So there's nothing to guess because he's a good good guy. I've never seen him again, actually, at the boot camp. But we was good friends at boot camp. Kid you not. Man, one time we went, we went to the rifle range, and he was shooting. And he was trying to hit uh, the target, but he couldn't hit it. He was like, man, I don't know why it's so difficult. And, oh, sorry. Let me give you a little bit of back before I get there. So you got the target. You, you've been to the rifle range, so you already know. But for everybody to kind of visualize, you got your target that you're trying to hit with your rifle. And what that looks like is a white sheet. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's a white sheet of paper with a black circle in the middle, and you're trying to hit the black circle. So he, looked up, he, he said, he said, I lied. He was like, man, I don't know why I can't. I can't hit the, the circle. I've been hitting blacks for years. And I was like, what the hell are you saying? <laughs> me and Lipkin got into like a small scuffle out there. <laughs> oh. So I me and Lipkin got into a small scuffle and everything. But then we ended up becoming really good friends and stuff. And it was so funny. And it was like, it both changed our mind. Because I'll be completely honest with you. I did not grow up with a lot of Caucasian white people. And obviously he didn't grow up with a lot of black people. So just even like, and I'm sure he didn't, he even told me like, I really wasn't meaning anything like bad behind it, but you know, just not being exposed to different people, different cultures. You don't necessarily consciously understand, you know, how that may impact somebody else or how to conduct yourself around other people. What's appropriate, what's not appropriate, all these different things. And so, that is one thing I appreciate about the military is that they force you to interact, trust, and put your life and your trust into the person to your left, into the person to your right, regardless of what they look like. And you must figure out how the two of you, the five of you, the platoon of you, however size it is, going to get along and make it to the end of the mission. And that's what what. One of the one of the very strong impactful things that brought it to the military is that you learn that man. I don't care what you look like. If we here together and we both trusting in each other, we're gonna get to the finish line. And it really made it so very easy to just you know quickly just. I, I guess like I never you know I, I never felt. It's it's difficult to say you know it's it's like you don't have that. I see you as this color. I see you as that color. I see you as this. It's just, you know, it's just, man, whatever. We here together. We here together. I don't care what color, what you look like. That's one thing I'd say the military definitely uh, opened up. Yeah. 
the, the brother and sister in arms kind of thing, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Cause, because once you get there and you have that back and forth with people and everything like that, and you meet people that you never would have met in your life, you know, uh, like, like one of the guys I met in Germany, it, it was funny because he, he was, he was a Chinese Jamaican from Boston. So, I mean, you can't even make that up, you know, kind of thing, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really funny to even say stuff like that, you know, uh, but, but uh, it's, it's just with the military, you have that leadership, right? Where, and, and you kind of said this with a uh, uh, Christian there that when you started going into certain things where they're like, Oh, it's kind of like leader with leadership, but then you're like, wait, hold on. It's kind of like mentoring. And some people don't understand that, uh, the difference. And I think, uh, you might, you might even go into a little bit of that, you know, how, how those different values change you and change you in the military, you know, that kind of thing. Can you kind of, uh, expound on that portion of it, how those values change, change you? Yes, because so the way it changed for me um, was the way I was able to experience it. So um, coming in as a private and then, you know, making my way through the ranks one by one by one, um, you see a lot of different things. And you're right. A lot of people confuse what um, leadership is, what mentoring is, and um, it does become difficult for some people to be able to differentiate what that really means and how to apply that because you have leaders who aren't necessarily good leaders they're just directors they, they're easy, easy for you to say go here do this go here do that you know but it's quite different when you're trying to really lead somebody to take your spot because now even though you are a leader you have just become a mentor because i am trying to groom you to be better than me. So when I am not standing here, you can stand here and keep the torch going. And that's where the difference comes in that. There's a level of passion that goes into it. There's a level of personal understanding, getting to know the people that you actually are leading. Um, there's, it, it's, it's, it's a true bond. And although you are the person that is in charge, you almost feel like a father to these people that, basically put their faith in you to direct them in the right direction and if you truly care about them like you care about your kids you're going to teach them the things that are going to make them better than you and so i think that's where that kind of really diff uh really really defines what that leadership and mentorship um really means and how they integrate with each other Yeah, definitely. Like, cause, cause I felt the same thing. Cause like you said, I, I came in as a private too, went up the ranks. Uh, then I, uh, kind of switched to the dark side. So, so to speak, how uh, a lot of enlisted people say I went to become a warrant officer, you know, the main uh, enemy of Sergeant major. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember as a, I became a platoon leader, uh, 
And like, I thought as a leader, as a mentor, everything like that, it was to cover my guys, cover them from all the BS that's coming down, you know, kind of thing, be that shield, have them have a, have that space where they can do their thing. They can do their stuff. I'm glad you brought that and brought that out, you know, and, and told people about that. Uh, one thing I do want to know, because a lot, a lot of stuff in here, and, and then after this, I'll uh, switch it over to uh, the questions that people have and, and to Christian and all the questions. I really want to know about your kind of like your self-care, especially uh, through the through uh, like the military and on to social work, just, did some of that stay in the place? And does it change on, especially on those harder days, being in that dialysis unit, knowing that maybe the dialysis is not, not working, something like that, you know, having that, having that client that all of a sudden you really got kind of a part two, and then all of a sudden something happens, you know, those hard days. What does that self-care look for you from like, the military time to now, how it changed. You know, I really appreciate um, you asking that question um, because it it's it, it really needs to um, change in the culture of the military. And I, I'm not saying that we aren't warriors for a certain reason that we do things a certain way for a certain reason. We do these things because you know there's. I don't have to really kind of go very deep. Me and you know, there's been things in our lives that we don't necessarily like to really rediscover, re-talk re about it, kind of look at. We do what we have to do, you know, and we complete the mission. And that's that's really the only thing that matters. And just as close-minded as that was that I said, that's exactly how I coped um, throughout the military, being that close-minded um, to what my body and what my um, – my brain and the, my my inner emotions and everything was telling me. And that's kind of where it ended up coming to that dark side for me, where it started to break down where um, towards the end of my uh, 12 year I'm like, you know, it's time for me to go. Um, because we don't cope well. I don't feel like many of us cope well. And I don't want to speak for everybody, but I can speak for some because I've been there with them. And we don't, I don't think we cope well at all. We just don't deal with it. We just we, we just put our head down, what they always say, put your head down, put your left foot in front of your right foot, and right. you keep walking. And it's it, it, it works really well. Trust me. It does work really well. That's how we get through the thick of things, <laughs> because we put our head down, and we just keep trucking forward. Um, but when those things, they never go away, and they always will come back, and they will come back, and they will come and hit you hard. Um, when it does so coping through the how that changed for me is that now um i've finally gotten to a point where you know i i actually i actually feel comfortable with dealing with things and how i cope now is i talk i share i seek help i talk about the things that are bothering me and i even let tears come out of my eyes when i i, I couldn't believe how long it was before I actually let tears shed out of my eyes, I've lost friends in the military. I've, uh, I've, I've seen friends go away, whether to be combat suicide, whatever that may be. And I mean, I, I know I've cried, but I've never really cried, cried, like literally shed a tear 
until I got out of the out of the Marine Corps and I or was going through the things I was going through and I actually broke down and just it just all came out and I, I thought to myself I'm like man I've never done that before in my life and it felt so good just to be in a place where I was able to open myself up to they did just open myself this is what I'm experiencing this is what I'm going through and it sucks and being having an open mind and just really being in tune to what's going on and being okay with that man that that's that is one of the big changes um that happened I started to find time to just say you know what I'm gonna go and do things that I like to do and be okay with it. And I mean, it's some pansy stuff. I was going to like go to the museums and look at art. I went to the Van Gogh and um, the Monet um, um, projects. And I was like, man, that felt good just to do something like I was said before. That's so lame. I'm not doing that. Just to be myself and kind of open up and say, it's okay to be and feel and do whatever you want to do. And if it makes you happy, do that. That's how I started to cope and being okay with it. Um, not trying to be this this hardcore shell of a of a warrior that we were bred to be as Marines and as soldiers, you know, because it 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 is really detrimental to to our mental health, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I I totally agree with that. That's. It's kind of like the way. way. And the reason why I'm wearing the shirt, you know, the grumpy old vet shirt. But even Christian can say this with like the first pod, the first uh, blog I did was grumpy old vet or just a teddy bear. That's that's just how I put it. You know, it's like I might look like this, but honestly, once you get to know me, I'm just like little <laughs> little doughboy. You know, I just. <laughs> I'm just a little kid in a big, big man suit, you know, kind of thing. But I, I like to hand it back over to uh, Christian there. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Those are some great questions, Mark. Thanks for providing us with more insight, G. Um, right now, I want to turn it over to questions from the audience, from our listeners. Uh, you can ask a question in the chat or you can uh, queue up to call in. Um, we do have one comment. I believe that's from... Sasa says, thank you for the reminder why I work with kids. I love my job, and I believe that all kids have good in them, even if they have so much behavioral issues when they come to school. Once again, thanks for the reminder. Let's see if we get any other questions coming in. Um, you still like in Hawaii? I still love Hawaii. Um, still love Hawaii. But I do want to say to the person that commented, um, thank you. Um, as well for being there and, and and sometimes we all need reminders but you know thank you for just being receptive and open and 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 honest, you know just just opening up to say yeah you know what we all can get caught up in ourselves and it's okay to kind of step back remind ourselves and be able to say all right this is what the purpose is this is what we're doing you know the reason why I like working with kids is because um, you know it's kind of difficult to change you know Everybody that's way up here, we're talking about that age, kind of set their ways. My idea and my philosophy for working with kids was basically this. If you work with kids, then we can create a new wave of generational understanding that is completely different from what was previously taught. You know, kids nowadays, they're more open-minded. They are more um, okay with things. And that's where it can start at. Because it's difficult to start with, 
with you know our seniors because they already sat there and you know it, it's kind of is what it is but we started at the bottom and i'm not saying i'm not saying anything that can't be changed from them but what i'm saying is this is that if we start at the beginning then everything that comes beneath it should be good that's what i'm saying so that's why i like working with you yeah well, i don't see any questions coming in nobody's interested give it a few more minutes hey i i have one uh so so, uh, yes, G. So, when you since you're talking about the kids and stuff like that, uh, I was wondering, did you did you have a uh, kind of like a back and forth thought process that you still wanted to stay, kind of like doing stuff with vets? Because myself, I have a I have a back and forth right now thing. You know, I I want to do do the same thing with kids. But then I want to do, deal with vets at the same time. You know, you got that little in-between there, like, which way should I go? And I know I'm just at my BSW getting that, and I still have a little bit of time to figure it out. But did you go through that? Yes, I did. Um, I, I kind of felt like it was my duty to give back to the veteran population. Um, and so um, I did kind of it struggle a, a bit, you know, not in a negative way, but just kind of trying to figure out, uh should I? But I did. When I went into school and I started becoming a social worker, I felt like I, I was like born set. I was like, my mission is to go back to work for the VA and help other veterans because I've, for, for, and the reason why I was like that because I went through a lot of different counseling, seeing a psychologist and stuff like that. And it was so, it was so, it, it, it really turned me off. And I'll tell you why because we as veterans talk a different language. We have a different experience. We have a different humor. We, you know, we interact differently. And it, it, it's just different from where civilians have interacted. And so I kind of give you a slight example. Um, talking with therapists and stuff, I'm like, I, I would kill that guy. And like, Whoa, you would do what? And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. Uh, if he threats, like, it, it, just to, to say that and like in the scenario, I'm like, you know, he threatened my family. Yes, I would. I'm not saying I'm going to, but I'm saying if it come to it, I, I, it's going to happen, right? And so they, I, I get looked at and I get evaluated because it's like, oh, this guy is this way. But if I was to talk to you and, and speak, and I'm like, hey, yeah, that guy come across me, he, his life is in danger. <laughs> Basically, you put mine in danger. We would receive that a little bit differently at times. And it's, I, I saw some of that disconnect. I know that was a pretty... <laughs> you know kind of jumping in there but you get what i'm saying like the the experiences and things are a little bit different and like even when i'm talking and i would go see somebody different i would start to shut down and be scared to go and talk because i'm like oh crap if i start talking to this person you know either you're judging or feel it this way and so you don't you don't want to be as open and then a lot of things that you don't really want to rekindle and talk about or open that door up to, it's easier for me to just, I can speak a few things about a, diff, a, a few different areas in geographical locations inside the world. And you already got the picture. You know what I mean? So we don't have to kind of go through a long, you know, a whole bunch of different sessions to kind of get there. That connects our dance. So I felt like I needed to go back and provide that for other veterans, somebody that had, can share the same experience that they had. So I did struggle with that. Um, but throughout my um, schooling, 
being able to be introduced into these different areas, for example, like domestic violence. And I was like, wow, that, that felt good. Once you start to kind of like work in different areas, you kind of, I, I think I got to a point where I was like, hey, you know what? If I'm there to help anyone, then it's okay. As long as I'm helping somebody. And then when I progress later in my career, then I can kind of tailor it to where I want to be. And that's why I'm chasing my uh, LCSW and still be there to provide for uh, veterans as well. So I kind of did experience a little bit of that in the beginning. Right on. But we still have time for questions. Actually, we, we've got some coming in here. Uh, we got, hey, Uncle G, just wanted to say, so very proud of you. You've always been a person I look for, to for wisdom and strength. To hear about the things that even I didn't know, reassured how strong you are and your growth journey. Proud and love your niece. Right on. Tear up on this TV. <laughs> I was hoping. That's what I was going to say. I was hoping we'd get a little teary-eyed there. All right, this is Doreen. She's one of my students. She says, I really relate with your perspective, G, when it comes to not understanding experiences in the moment. But when looking back, you realized you had gained a valuable lesson. My questions are, with growing up, in a quote-unquote healthy home, what ways have you learned to interact with kids that may not have had that positive upbringing? Also, did you have a chance, did you have to change your ways of thinking of life and interactions when transferring from the military lifestyle to social worker? Um, I'm going to start with the second part. I'm going to let you um, ask the first part of the question again. But the second part, did, did things have changed? Yes. A lot of things um, had to uh, change um, because, again, um, and for a good reason, um, we are in the military, you, you kind of learn and you adapt to um, be a warrior. That's just true, truly what it is. You know, um, We don't really go and try to um, help ourselves as far as for mental health reasons. We, if we get hurt, we just push right through it. You know, we don't really look at, we look at this way. I, I, I don't get up and let's go, you know? And so that kind of hardcore way that abrasive type of camaraderie and everything that we had, that really um, had to change. Um, because I had to learn how to understand how to communicate with people outside of that culture. And I'll give an example when in, um, in dialysis, I have a resource navigator um, and um, she's a female. Um, and I didn't work with many females at all, um, especially in the combat and MOS. Um, and I had to learn how to, I guess, communicate in a way that I am not, um, I guess, offending other people or making people feel bad about themselves and how to communicate in an uplifting way. Because, like, if it was me and Mark, we probably, and something happened, I'm probably like, man, shut up and dust it off and let's go. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I don't want to hear that crap. You know, like, seriously. <laughs> That's why you laugh because that that would be the way we would kind of communicate, you know, for lack lack of staring too much. And so, um, I had to learn that that's not the way that you communicate with other people. 
people. So that was one big change. I have to, I do have to stop a lot. And I have to, before I say and before I speak and before I interact, in the beginning, I used to have to say, okay, before you respond, think what you're going to say. Okay, you're not going to say that. You're going to say this. Okay, now I got, I'm ready to respond. So, yeah, it, it was a transition <laughs> in there. Um, and sorry, can you repeat the first part of the question again? Yeah, it just talks about how you said that you grew up in a, uh, a home that was healthy for the most part. Um, how have you learned to interact with kids that haven't had that positive upbringing? Um, was to kind of give them some of the same things that my um, my family gave to us, um, you know, that love and support and understanding and being there for each other. Like, um, that's the things that were taught to us and to be kind to other people and be there and help. That, that Those are the things that I try to provide for some of my other kids because they don't necessarily experience that in some of their homes. And there's no shame, no fault to their parents. I'm not here to kind of judge and, you know, determine all these other different things. I'm just saying some experiences weren't like that. And when you provide that nurturing, loving um, environment, it's a difference. And they appreciate it. They learn differently. They trust you. It, 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 it's different. Like I told y'all from the beginning, like when you when we leave my neighborhood and my niece is on here, so she can, she'll tell you, when you walk outside this neighborhood, <laughs> it's on. <laughs> hope you got, hope you got something to protect yourself when you walk it out of there, you know, but, um, to, but to also come back home and then have a safe haven, a safe place is completely different. And a lot of kids, these kids don't have that. So I've, them and to respect their cultures and the, their behaviors and mannerisms and stuff for what that is. You know, that's one thing that's good about us as social workers. We learn to not place our own judgment on somebody else, but to try to understand and respect 
And that's what they call that cultural competence, but we talk, call it cultural humility because we really want to understand your culture so we don't judge it. That's one thing that I was exposed to from adult friends, the youth that goes into play into dialysis because dialysis is not discriminatory. It, it, we have 18-year-old kids all the way to 95-year-old veterans to any race, color, creed, whatever it may be inside of um, our dialysis center. And what I see a lot of times is I, I, I see it, you know, and I'm not going I'm not trying to call out my place. But what I do see is um, a lot of behaviors towards the different cultures just just on a daily basis. And it doesn't seem intentional. It just seems like it's, it's just done that way because the lack of experience. And so what Adult Friends for Youth allowed me to do, for one, is to learn these different Because they look at this African-American guy inside of Hawaii, which is already one anomaly. There's not many of us here. But then, two, many of them have not interacted with many African-American people. And then for me to sit there and kind of speak a little bit of your language, for example, or to say things that your culture kind of know or kind of understand, and to mention things that culturally is appropriate for you, it's a game changer. And that's what Adult Friends for You've opened the door for me to be able to do because it gave me that chance to experience those things. And it helps me out in dialysis because immediately I'm establishing rapports. Immediately I'm establishing relationships. Immediately people are trusting me. Immediately people, like, they, they look at me like, oh, if anybody inside this building or anybody I can come to, I'm going to come to G. And it ain't got to do anything with dialysis. It could be anything going on in my life. But this guy get me. So I can definitely come to him. That's a great question. Yeah, you got more questions here. We got from Heather. Uh, she said, first of all, thanks for sharing your story. Do you find it useful to share your background as it relates to your profession in social work? And how do you decide when to share your lived experience? Um, and this is just me, my thoughts, my, my, my own feelings and perspectives. Um, so... I am a person that is okay with self-disclosing. Um, and I know that we hear a lot of times that, you know, be careful with um, self-disclosing stuff here and there. The way I look at self-disclosure is, and this is just, again, my own personal belief, is that if I'm self-disclosing to achieve a goal that's there to help you, then it's completely okay. If I'm using self-disclosure to something that's going to help me, any and everybody there is no there is no description of who is going to impact other than the fact of why they're impacted which is high blood um, 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 hypertension and uh, diabetes which every race creed and culture all experience so I have people from all different kind of walks of life in fact I have people that come in there right now in prison suits because they are prisoners <laughs> and they come into dialysis and so me being able to share my past experiences um, with many, many of, my, uh, of my people, and it's not like I just go into like a long story uh, about stuff, but I'm okay with like sharing little bits and spurts and saying, you know, I know what that's like because this is kind of what I experienced. Or, I know what that's like because this, you know, I, I've, I've walked through this or whatever that may be. 
um, I think that that just really builds the connection and trust between the mutual relationship between each other. And why that's very important inside of dialysis is because it's different from like an outpatient um, type of facility where they're, you're with them for a very short period of time and they're gone. With dialysis patients, we're with them for the rest of their lives until they either, one, expire or they get a transplant or they decide to do dialysis at home. So it's a different relationship that goes along there. And being able to share things about myself with them um, lets them know that not only I'm somebody that they can trust, but I'm somebody that is personable with them. And I truly care about them because I care enough to let you know things about myself that everybody else may not necessarily know inside the regular world. Yeah, I liked your answer, G, about specifically when you said, um, you know, is there a reason for it? Is there, do I have a reason for, sh- for sharing my story or am I doing it for myself? Because we can do that, right, for ourselves. Does it contribute to the situation? Are we trying to build ourselves up? Why are we doing it? If we have a good reason to share, to help someone, then I believe that's a good enough reason. Um, while you're talking about dialysis, I want to stay there for a minute uh, before I get to Brad's question. So... Working with many different populations from troubled youth to, to say, the heroin addicts, opioid addicts that I was talking about earlier to dialysis patients, often others are going to perceive those individuals is that they're creating their own problems. If they would change their lifestyle, if they would do this differently, then they wouldn't have these problems. And so it leads to kind of a a negative perspective towards those individuals that affects the way that they... I mean, they still provide the services, but oftentimes it's, you know, there's resentment towards those people. Um, we look down upon them. And the more I've learned as a social worker, as an adult, as a human being, from evaluating my own experiences, working with other people, reading, listening to other things, is that, you know, people that harm themselves based on, like, whether it's the food that um, you know, self-afflicting behaviors. There's reasons behind that, you know what I'm saying? And there's uh, usually a, a, a background of trauma that founds many of these behaviors, these experiences, these ways of being the self, like the, the self-harming uh, behaviors. And I was just wondering what your experience is. You're working there right now. You know, do you struggle with that in the, in the workplace with yourself? Do you see other people acting that way or, or that kind of those kind of discussions going on and how do you navigate that? And what do you think about it? Um, you know, I, especially when it comes to the judgment and with people that are doing like things for self that, that are, that people will look at. So it just kind of be a little bit more specific. So I have a lot of uh, homeless people um, that are there inside of um, my dialysis. And many of them, some of them will say I'm not homeless. I'm actually just houseless, which is very, very true here in Hawaii. It's, you know, they, they aren't, they are home, um, but they just don't have a house. Um, but a lot of things that people are doing, um, they are trying to cope with stuff and coping with things can look very differently for everybody, you know, and it, it can get judged very easily, um, but you don't necessarily know what that person is experiencing, what that person's going through, or what's being exposed to. And so, one example to that, we have some veterans, right, that are that are there and they are addicted. Um, and that addiction came from their military experience from Vietnam, right, where they was exposed to 
different type of medicines that turned into addictions, which um, you can easily look up the history into that. And so to turn around and to just judge them because now they're down and out and they're in that point in that place, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like, you know, of course they, they, they didn't want to be in that position. They're not trying to be there. And this is the only way they can actually feel and, and get through some of the things they're going through. I mean, it's, it's tough and it's rough to not only have been in Vietnam, but then to come to, um, you know, come back home and nobody cares about you. And then to be at this point where, you know, you're all drugged out and different things because you're trying to cope with these things, but you're drugged out because they expose you to the drugs that you can't now get off of. You know, I, I kind of share those kind of stories and kind of um, that, lineage of, that lineage of how things can lead to a certain thing so people can understand. Um, I have conversations, for example, like when they deal with our prisoners and I'm trying to help people understand you got to look at these people differently. We're here to provide a service and, you know, you shouldn't be judging. So I put this example out there too. I will say, you know, you get, you get a person who made a mistake at, at 18, right? And then they end up getting a felony and then now they're a felon. And then they finally get released on the streets and then nobody will hire them. And then nobody will help them. And so they're feeling down and bad about themselves and they may do a little bit of drugs so that way they don't, to experience that or they may go out there and they go steal something now they back in trouble now you're back you know judging them again and they finally get back out and they're out on parole and they're trying to get their life back on and then you're like oh i'm not gonna hire you because you're on parole so then now they still can't get a job and they still can't get money so now they go back got and they rob somebody else like we i have these conversations with people to try to help um i guess break down the barriers of judgment and try to open the door for understanding and try to like look back through the lives of these people and the journeys that they went through. So that way you can kind of understand why they got into this position and why it may be that the things that they're doing to cope with the things that they're doing currently are not the best things and they're completely maladaptive. But to, in order to help them through that, you got to understand how did they get to that point? Because if you immediately judge or from the very beginning, you immediately shut off your ability to help that person. Yeah, thank you for that answer. We got Brad. Uh, looks like the last question. He says, I can appreciate your story, G. I can relate to some of it. Were there any people that you struggled to help because you didn't understand them as much? And how do you overcome that? Um, there has, has been people... Um, that that that's been difficult to help. Um, none that really immediately comes to mind, um, but I will say there has been, and my struggle more to help them was my struggle to just try to understand, not really struggling to be able to work with that person, so to say. So just really struggling to try to understand how they, um, I guess, got to the point of where they are at versus it being um you know a struggle to work with that person because i i just can't really you know i, I have something that i feel about that person I hope that makes sense yeah thank you all right so i don't think we have any more questions um you have any la i want to give you one last question g so now that you are uh you know you're a professional social worker msw level on the pursuit of uh, LCSW right around the corner. Like, what does it all mean for you? And what would you, 
there are several students in here that are in the BSW, finishing up the BSW program. What, um, what advice would you give to them? You know, what do you, when you look back on your journey, what do you wish you may have done differently or taken more seriously or maybe paid more attention to? And what, what does it all mean to you now as, you know, you've almost come, you've almost completed the circle um, as far as meeting all of their accreditations possible to become who you wanted to be as a social worker? What does it all mean? Um, it, it means a lot to me personally um, to start with because, again, I, I, I didn't graduate high school. I had to end up in the military school, which I got connected to that because I actually was about to get ready to go to jail for a very long time. And through the judge talking with my mom and everything, they got me into this program. They got me into the military school. So um, I was able to get to this point. So, I mean, it, it really, a lot of things that my journey, mean, it, it just means a lot to me. Um, to know that I am now accomplishing things that I'm setting myself out to accomplish and there are they're good things. Um, and it does come back full circle because I used to be told, you're not going to achieve this, you're not going to achieve that, you're not going to do this, you're no good and all these other things. And that's kind of what derailed me and got me going in the direction that I was going because I kind of believed what these people were saying. So it it it. Double time it means even more to me um, to know that I made it to this point. My parents are proud of me. My niece, she's here right now. They all support me. Um, they see the things that I'm doing. I know many of them saw me. Oh, not many of them. They, they knew who I was growing up. They seen the path, but they also kept giving me that foundation. So it means a heck of a lot for me to show them that, hey, I know I wasn't just, you know, this silver star in the sky growing up. But everything you guys provided for me to get to where I am, it all meant a lot. And it was all a part of the steps and, and the foundation for me to achieve where I'm at. And so because you all provided that foundation for me is why I am here. And that's why it means so much to be able to achieve these things and then say, look, Ma, I did. I don't even – even if I don't do much else with it, Mom, look what I, look, look what I did, like – you guys really got me got me to where I am now. Um, but for everybody else that are going through um, the social work field, you know, just I'm sure you already are, but just be open minded and just be curious. Just be curious. And be curious enough to keep trying to, to dig more into whatever that is, every different aspect. I'm still learning so much every day. And that is by me staying curious and keeping my mind open to want to see and expand and understand more. And just like they teach us with trying to establish rapport, you can use that same skill with you and your own development by just keeping your mind open, being curious and wanting to learn more and never getting to the point where you think that you know it all because we never will. Wise words. Well, G. I just want to say thanks for coming on. Um, I want to say thanks for being who you are, a revolutionary social worker, a revolutionary human being, you know, trying to do things differently, looking at the world, looking at the field, looking at the people you work with in a different way. I appreciate that. I appreciate who you are. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, any last words from you, Mark? I'm just glad I got to meet G. Um, I'm glad uh, I, I was able to co-host this one, get that uh, camaraderie back and forth between G and me. 
Uh, but I really love uh, doing this and more students should actually do this too. <laughs> yeah, the opportunity is there. Um, yeah, thank you to Mark. I uh, appreciate your, your thoughtful approach uh, to participating in the podcast. So thank you for that. What about you? Any last words from you, G? Yes. Um, I'd like to say thank you, one, to everybody that's out there. Um, first, thank yous are definitely to my family. Y'all always support me. I really love y'all. I appreciate it. I know I don't call and come home as much as possible. Believe me, you are in my head every day. And the reason that I'm out here doing the things I'm doing is, is because of y'all and because of the person y'all set me, that, who y'all maybe are. That, that's why I'm here. So, no, I don't forget about y'all. And I love y'all and I miss y'all. Mark and Christian, I really appreciate you. Both, Mark, really great to meet you. Simplify from a Marine to a soldier. Hey, love it. You know, we always going to have our fun differences, but hey, no, it's all love and, you know, we're always there. But Christian, also too, man, thank you for remembering me. I appreciate you being there um, for me as a professor and as a friend. And believe me, whether you even know it, know it or not, you're like a mentor to me too. No matter, regardless of what the age difference and all this stuff looks like, man, I learned and I appreciate um, you and Alicia. Um, we just a really good people, you know, and just that relationship that we have, um, I appreciate it. So I hope that we can continue this. I hope me and Mark can see each other again. And to everybody out there, thank you for listening. I appreciate the questions. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I got. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to know you. And, uh, you know, like the great uh, reggae legend, Mr. Peter Tosh would say, you know, we're birds of a feather. Uh, we're all birds of a feather and we got to flock together. Uh, and I believe that in our, our situation here. So, again, thank you. Um, well, again, and if you have a story to tell and you're interested in being on the podcast, hit me up. C.A. Stetler at Alaska.edu. C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at Alaska.edu. You can find episodes right here on the Colin app, or you can check us out on Apple and Spotify after they're recorded. Just search for The Critical Social Worker, um, and, or those links are also on the uh, Colin page. And we'll be broadcasting live uh, every Saturday, but this uh, upcoming Saturday morning at 10 a.m., I will have um, social workers gone through the Rural Human Services Program, BSW cohort, uh, working on MSWs, uh, Caspook, and Forrest Anderson. It said social workers from Southeast Alaska. It's going to be great. So make sure you check us out. The critical social worker is the a critical group. social worker is a collaboration. Good. Go for it, Mark. Okay. The critical social worker is a collaboration effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This episode was hosted by Christian Stetler and myself, Mark Shimkus.
This has been a Conscious Party production. You have been listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story. All right, see you guys later. Aloha, everyone. All right. Aloha, mahalo.